Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. This paranoid understanding of the world is, is basically what, 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 what he writes for, and also if we see the movies, of course. They, uh, but sometimes I think, I mean, I have put some thoughts into that in, in the book as well, like why are people so attracted to this idea that there are some kind of master puppeteers who are controlling world history and so on. And, and maybe it relates to our anxieties of a late modern world that is, is there more to it or not? I mean, what, 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 I mean, some really deep existential questions and then somebody comes and gives you some kind of narrative that tells you, wow, there's a great sacred history behind all of this, yes, that is uh, hidden behind the lost symbols of, you know, an, an ancient esoteric tradition. And, and, and then Brown helps us to unpack that kind of idea, which makes it attractive to us to, to accept. There is no single definition or form of Freemasonry. Indeed, the Brotherhood and its history are surrounded by an abundance of facts, fictions and sources. So writes Swedish academic and cultural historian Dr. Andreas Onersforts in his latest book, Freemasonry, A Very Short History, published by Oxford University Press. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack the conspiracy myths and fictions surrounding Freemasonry and their 300-year history and ask, have they been misunderstood? This evening, I'm joined by Andreas Onersworth from the University of Gothenburg, who argues in Freemasonry, a very short introduction, that there will always remain a gap between insiders and outsider observations and their agreement upon any proper understanding of Freemasonry. Andreas goes on to argue, live performance of ritual constitutes the centrepiece of activities in Freemasonry and is one of its defining features that distinguishes it from the majority of other organisations. So who and what are the Freemasons? What is their position in our world today? And will they always be distrusted? My name is uh, Andreas Önerfors. I am an Associate Professor in the History of Sciences and Ideas at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. And my area of expertise is the history of the Enlightenment, 18th century in general, and in particular the history of uh, secret societies and uh, Freemasonry, press history, and um, history of science. But I've also recently worked more on more modern topics in the uh, history of political ideas. What an interesting range of uh, scholarship there, Andreas, and really well done on the book. I might start out with a big wide open question, if that's OK. When I say yeah. the word Freemasons, what jumps into your mind immediately? Well, a close fraternity, uh, um, a boys club, some mystery. Um, uh, and and that, that is, of course, the first association you get when you think about the term. Uh, and it all depends on how much you know about it before and how much you have read or heard, uh, uh, which forms our preconceptions about a certain subject, of course. Do you think it could be argued that the Freemasons are somewhat misunderstood? Like, I imagine when you're either at book festivals or academic conferences or even going out for a cup of coffee with a friend and you say you've just published something or more stuff in relation to the Freemasons, they mm. possibly are asking you questions that are a little bit ill-informed. In, indeed. And that is um, 
both the fascinating uh, issue with Freemasonry and the challenging issue with it, because uh, when I started off my academic journey into exploring this subject, um, there was not so much to take from to get a clear understanding of what the phenomenon was and, and is and meant to the people in the 18th century that I mostly was interested in to understand and why they joined and why so many eminent people joined. Uh, so there was not so much to, to touch on, and uh, I was uh, struggling to find good literature on this subject, and, and the preconceptions uh, are a very strong um, part of the scholarship that, that, that was existent in Freemasonry up to then. Uh, so I, I decided I had to do my own, um, my, my own research uh, into that field to get a better understanding. But why do you think perceptions of Freemasonry are a little bit negative? Like, clearly, um, the, the associations of the membership are not kind of like a church choir, let's say, or a sports club, or, you yeah. know what I mean, like a hiking or biking club. The nuances are a little bit different. And some people would see the organisation as a little bit uh, secretive and would exactly, possibly yeah. distrust yeah. some aspects of their organisation, as well as the quality of what they do. Indeed, and that is, of course, related to that secrecy occupies an important function in Freemasonry within its own uh, form of organization, and it's an organizational principle that, that distinguishes it from the rest of, let's say, a, a soccer club or, um, a, you know, some golf club or whatever, because everybody knows what people are doing uh, playing golf or soccer or, or an instrument, whereas the point with Freemasonry is that, that the Masons say, we have our own rituals, we have our own secrets, uh, and we won't share them with others. So in my book, I call that a kind of advanced play around transparency and secrecy, uh, a societal play, so to speak. You're playing with the idea of the secret as an organizational form and uh, content of what you actually are doing. So in the writing of this book, did you want to recorrect the record, Andreas, or, you know, was that your primary motivation or where, where were things springing yes. from? Well, uh, 15 years ago, we had vague ideas in scholarship about how to work on the phenomenon. We, we, there had been some individual researchers in the United States and also in Europe who had done pioneering work. But there was uh, a new abundance of sources uh, for, for reasons that are uh, related to the European history, because lots had been buried in the eastern part of Europe due to the Second World War. So suddenly we had a moment in history where historians had access to a, a huge abundance of sources. And on the other hand, we, had, uh, we didn't have any substantial scholarship into the phenomenon. So it was a prime time for new research to be pr- produced. And uh, I was a part of that new m- movement into the subject area. Uh, and, and this book marks, so to speak, uh, uh, a summary of what that scholarship has achieved in the last 15 years. But it's interesting, Andreas, that how we look at history and, and or the organisations or cultural movements around it is very yeah. much based on where we are today and how we're evolving. So exactly. if whether how you interpret uh, the sources or all the different other um, yeah. artefacts of sorts that you're researching through, you're bringing a temperament or a mindset of somebody in, you know, somebody from today. And, you know, mm. whether you could argue that we've loosened up a little and become more liberal. Now, I know a lot of people would think we're doing quite the reverse and becoming more conservative. How we yeah. understand a cult, let's say, is quite different to how we understood cult-like activities maybe 50 years ago. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, absolutely. 
and and uh, I found it fascinating when starting to write about the book that we now can can link on on some solid scholarship from which we can tell uh, the 300 years of fraternal history of the Freemasons in in a new way with new facets and including uh, such. Um, sometimes thought-provoking issues such as female participation or the entire field of conspiracy theories and also mm. intramasonic imagination like uh, the temper myth or, or, and esotericism and so on. And now we, we can actually, we have sources and we have scholarship with which we can tell uh, the story of this unknown fraternity uh, in a much better and much clearer way. Uh, that, that, that was, for me, the, the primary driver in, in producing that book. You talk about the different rituals associated with the Masons, and you write, yeah. Masonic rituals are placed within a symbolic narrative framework, pointing progressively forward through the degree structure. I'm just wondering, why do you think the Templar myth has really um, captured public imagination? Why do you think yeah. that is? Um, there are many different reasons for that. The, 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 the first uh, ritual structure as such, and a striking element of Freemasonry as a, as a kind of uh, school for the improvement of morality or philosophy, uh, is, is the idea that you cannot get everything in one step. You have to move in different steps. Uh, you have to portion out, so to speak, uh, what you can know about yourself and about uh, your relationship to the divine or whatever. So there's an idea about that. You are initiated as a primary event, and then you get deeper and deeper into knowledge. And uh, there is a narrative structure, as I said, because there's a story built into uh, the rituals, a storyline, like in, like a musical score, or a theatre play, or or a, a good book, you know. And then uh, it's it's open-ended, and once you 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 reach one one end of that narrative, it's it's open for for more things to happen. And one thing that happened during the 18th century was the development of this Ninth Templar myth. Uh, and why that? That was your question. And I, I think there are different dimensions to it. One is that uh, it was a defunct uh, order of knighthood in a time when suddenly knighthood was uh, something that, that was seen as something attractive again. Because uh, during the 18th century, many states in Europe introduced uh, orders of knighthood as a reward for their citizens. So what the Masons did was that they, they didn't care about that, that they were doing it, that they were doing it on, a, on their own. They were imagining their own knighthood, so to speak, that they would give to their own members. But why the Knights Templars? Well, the interesting thing comes in. Well, it's a defunct order. It was prohibited by the Vatican. Uh, and you have a story of, of, of a martyrdom that is trapped between secular and sacred powers that are not fair against you. And you can... Uh, you can, so to speak, write the, the story or tell the story about a neglected elite of enlightened people who actually want to do good for mankind but are um, uh, stopped in their in, in, in endeavor by uh, the evil machinations of uh, political power and, and spiritual power. Uh, that, that is in the Knights Templar myth. I'm just wondering, how do you understand the Temple of Solomon um, in Masonic ritual and yeah. the legend of Hiram? And, you know, yes, exactly. You know, what is the significance of all of that? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that, that is uh, uh, the basic plot of the narrative structure I'm talking about. is about construction, destruction and reconstruction. That is the, the basic narrative uh, way that you can find in Freemasonry. Because uh, the Temple of Solomon is built 
by this master architect, uh, Hiram, on the order of uh, uh, Solomon, isn't it? And then in the, in, in, in the Masonic continuation of the story that you find in the Bible, the master architect is killed by three fellow craft masons um, because they want to get to know a password for, they have for a higher degree, because they want to have, they're greedy, because they want to have more knowledge, and, and things like that. Uh, so that is the tragic element where, where, where the temple eventually is destroyed. Uh, the next element is then the prospect of reconstruction, yeah, that you can, uh, uh, which is the continuation. The temple is destroyed. Will it ever be rebuilt again? And in what form? So it's all symbols. Is that what you're saying? Oh, of course. Yes. Yes. And, and that you can take as a, as a symbolic narrative about uh, your own life human society in general, or, you know, uh, human existence. And clearly that's worked for lots of different individuals who have either um, connected up with the Masons uh, or other orders are using it or applying it into their own, um, I suppose, spiritual understanding of the world. But I'm just wondering, um, you know, Johnny Buddhist, let's say, or Matt the Atheist or whoever, and um, you're interested in some of the the fraternal aspects of uh, the Masons and some of their charitable causes. But all of that kind of Christian framework on, on how they go about uh, recruiting and um, and the rituals could really be quite off-putting. It could. Uh, it, it was like that um, uh, from the beginning. The, the Masonic rituals were clearly placed within a Christian framework of interpretation. But then, during the 18th century, that was already toned down because in, in the spirit of tolerance. And then, around 1800, you have uh, two developments. One. Uh, in, into development where you have more secularized group of rituals and another one that retained the original Christian framework of interpretation. And then the third development is that that uh, came at the end of the 19th century was to open up Freemasonry also for people who did not believe in, uh, in, 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 in a god or a supreme being, so to speak, to leave that open to them if they wanted to take an oath on the Bible or the Quran or... Um, so today, there are three different frameworks of interpretation at play. Uh, the one is that has retained the Christian interpretation of Freemasonry. The second one that, that uh, opens up for other uh, religions as well, uh, the, the possibility I mean, of, of no specific religious background, but the belief in a supreme being, it might be Muslim or Jewish or Christian. And the third one that does not ask the candidates about any specific uh, religious um, commitment and theoretically also opens up for atheists to become Freemasons. Presumably you have attended uh, these uh, rituals, have you? Yes. I'm just wondering, yeah. from your personal um, interactions with the Masons, what, it, what do these rituals fulfil for you in your understanding and lived experience of them? Um, like what is their what are the, you know they obviously yeah. have a purpose or direction in terms of what they get of when course. they set out to do. But what do they do for you? Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's it, the the point with the rituals is the performance. It is something that takes place here and now. As I said before, like a musical score, for instance, or a theatre play. It is nothing that you can can read, but that happens in direct interaction between people. So it, it is in, enacted in in. in in interrelationship between uh, people in, in, in a specific time and place setting. So uh, 
and, and that makes them so unique. I mean, you, you could read them and you could get some fair understanding of them. But on the other hand, that, that I, I claim that is impossible because it's like a, if you go to a concert, okay, you can record a concert and listen to it again. But I mean, you cannot have the experience of that particular concert at that particular moment uh, uh, again and again and again. And that is the, the important element here, the performative thing that several people interact and something happens uh, in, in time and space. So like any other ritual, you, you know, you have pujas and Buddhism, you've lots of different, you know, you've different aspects of, um, you know, Christian celebration and ritual and all of that. I'm just wondering, uh, from your first uh, engagement with the Masons and taking part in all, in all these rituals, did it change your understanding? Or did it open or give you a different uh, perspective on them? Because it's one thing reading about the Masons in, bo- in books. And, uh, you know, yes. you qu- we might go into it later. You know, you quote Tolstoy and you, we talk, you talk mm. about Inspector Morris and lots of different yes. cultural interpretations of the Masons. I, but I'm just wondering, yes. how did it challenge your existing prejudices or not? Uh, yes, of course. And in and, and, and particular for for, for my, 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 my ideas about other... Uh, I mean, we don't... Uh, in... In, in, in the Western context, it is it's not so usual to have uh, these kinds of initiatory societies. This is something that we either think belongs to an, an older period in European history, because such things existed in, in, in the Greek period, for instance. We had mystery cults. Uh, it exists somehow in the, in the church, but, but not as fraternal orders. And in other cultures, there are there are these kinds of fraternities that are enacting, uh, as it is called in in in, in research, uh, uh, rites of passage, like between different ages or things like that. But in the Western context, we don't have so many instances of that, and that makes Freemasonry different. And in that sense, it retains something that that is very old, or that is, so to speak, uh, provides you with another perspective on on. Uh, uh, the way of uh, creating knowledge and also an, another respect for maybe how things are uh, in other cultures, yes? And I think that makes also, that it, that, it, that it is like that makes Freemasonry also adaptable to a multitude of different cultural contexts. It's nothing that is entirely rational or possible to grasp with, with reason only. It's something you have to experience and, and where you have emotions and feelings and reflections that are woven into the, the ritual play, so to speak. You talk a lot about moral refinement and, you know, some of the kind of the more yeah. um, charitable aspects of um, the Freemasonry movement. And one of the things mm. I was very surprised to read is, and it, it, you kind of um, unpack it to a degree, why some of the smartest minds in history have been attracted to mm. the Freemasonry movement. I think you list Churchill, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, there's loads. But I'm just wondering, oh. how do you explain that? Because, you know, again, like if it's a choir, if it's um, mm. a bridge club, um, a sports club, you know, you're going to get all walks of life, aren't you? Well, I think it has to do with, um, uh, with, the, with, with the message and the organizational form. But it is always a hen and egg question where these people attracted to Freemasonry before they made their careers in, in life, or was it the other way around? Did Freemasonry give them something that inspired them to do big things in society? And having studied quite a lot of these people, m- maybe not on the top level, but you know, in, in a specific historical con- uh, uh, context, I would say it's both because you can see 
that that great minds are attracted by the organization of forum and the ritual play and um, um, and the idea of welfare and charity. Uh, and then you have others who join, and then you see that they suddenly uh, they do certain things in society that other people don't do. I'm particularly talking about the 18th century that was transformative for for Western culture, um, and and that tells me something that the organization and what they were doing and the rituals they were doing were sort of uh, helping people to do uh, great things uh, in society that they possibly otherwise not would have done. Uh, and that's interesting because uh, there must be some, there, there is something to it that makes it so attractive. And um, ideas of cosmopolitanism that you think I have, I have an, I, I, I'm responsible for the world as a whole, not only for my own life or for society, but for society, the mankind in general. You argue Masonic charity anticipated central aspects of the modern welfare system without necessarily having a particular political agenda. I thought that was really interesting because not a lot of people would associate the Freemasonry movement with charitable causes. So can you talk me through that? Absolutely. Well, in, in, in organisational terms, Freemason was one of the first national organisations that on a national scale collected membership fees. Uh, the archives are very well organised still, and we can reconstruct that development that they were kind of taking in membership fees and, uh, and, and gathering money for national charitable projects. During the 18th century, one of the primary projects that, that you would find in almost every European country were were uh, orphanages, for instance, because that was a burning issue, that parents died, and many Freemasons around Europe uh, collected money, for instance, to, to establish orphanages or, uh, or to, to sponsor initiatives uh, for inoculation against smallpoxes and, and so on. Uh, and as, as private organizations, uh, the Masonic Lodges challenged the state in delivering political goods, uh, that we today would call welfare uh, in that sense. Uh, one of the organizations I've been studying, uh, um, um, an all-European uh, Masonic organization that existed a couple of decades in Europe in the 1770s and 80s, they were trying to organize a pension fund for their, for their members. I mean, that sounds quite boring, but it's a fascinating story because we don't have any general pension funds uh, at that time. Can we talk about secrecy? Do you think it could be yeah. argued that um, secrecy is the Freemasonry movement's greatest strength? Like, I know you bring up, um, and it's a very amusing uh, passage in the book, um, Inspector Morse and his yeah. somewhat unease, yeah. if not absolute contempt for the, oh, um, yeah. for the Masons. And it's, uh, you no. know, it, it always made for remarkable television and, and gave a nice kind of backstory into Inspector Morse. But Always, it is yeah. a very credible charge because, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If I pop down to our local um, offices here in Dublin, um, yeah. it's not straightforward. No, indeed. Well, I think that has to do with the particular history of uh, Freemasonry in England because uh, what started in, in, at the end of the uh, 19th century in Britain was that, that uh, uh, a development towards smaller lodges that also were for professionals. Yeah? So suddenly you, you would have... Uh, a doctor's lodge or an academic lodge or a policeman's lodge. And uh, whereas on the continent and in Scandinavia, you have larger lodges with, say, more than 100 members from all walks of life. And that was a particular choice in the development of, of British Freemasonry 
to allow for the establishment of specialized lodges for one particular profession. So you will even today find uh, medical doctor's lodges or writer's lodges or fireman's lodges and policeman's lodges and so on. And that is something that is specific for the British Isles. And then there have been, you know, these cases where people have thought about, oh, if the prosecutor is a mason and the policeman is a mason and, and if the accused is a mason, what happens? Yes. And, and Freemasonry has not been particularly interested in trying to dispel the, the myth that there is something going on. Yeah? Uh, so there have been some cases of high-profile cases of miscarriage of, of justice that have been associated with Masonic membership in, in, in the police force. Uh, that also have been investigated. But the problem is these rumors or, mm, yeah, how should we call them, uh, the, the, the perception of that that is something fishy going on still um, persists, so to speak. Yeah. Do you think the principles of Freemasonry are somewhat incompatible with um, Catholic teaching? Like the church has always had a very mm. uneasy relationship with uh, the oh. Masons and so on. And I think, um, would it be right in saying that when you join uh, the Masons that you have to put your membership of the Masons above whatever religious group you're affiliated with? Is that right? No, no, it's not right. Oh, right. Because so, that, and absolutely not, nothing that is written in, in, into Freemasonry. So why do you think I mean, that uh, is persistent? Because a lot of people yeah, I, would think that. Yeah, well, that is, I mean, it's always a question of, of interpretation, isn't it? I mean, if you join a, a fraternity that, that, is, uh, that places the Talmud and the Bible and the Quran on, on the altar, uh, then you can, might say as a Christian, oh, they are downgrading my religion to just one of all the others. And that's, of course, a take on tolerance you can have and say, oh, the Masons are, are making uh, all the religions the same. Um, but I would say that is a wrong take on what, what is happening in these moments when, when, you know, all the holy scriptures are placed on the, on, on the altar at the same time as, it, as they are in, in most of the British and, and American lodges, depending on who is a member. Um, so, so therefore, I think uh, if you understand tolerance in that way, you, you might feel threatened, for instance, when you come from a, from a religious tradition where you have these kind of clear ideas about the doctrines of the church and who has, who's right and who's wrong. And I think for the Catholic Church, there has always been a tension between what does the lay church do, who are the lay members of the church, and who is the church elite and establishment. And what happened in the 18th century that that there were some high-profile people in the Catholic Church that were interested in Freemasonry, uh, that were, so to speak, challenging that kind of power elite, yes, who is able to say what is right and what is wrong. Uh, and, and that was the starting point for, for the Catholic persecution of Freemasonry. That is number one. But then in the 19th century, there was another element added to it, and that is that in the Catholic countries of Southern Europe, uh, we find that Many people who are secular humanists um, are promoting the cause of free public education, medical care, and so on, uh, they join Masonic lodges in clear opposition to the Catholic Church. And then the Catholic Church stroke back, so to speak, mm. and was spreading lots of anti-Masonic propaganda. 
Andres, you used the word uh, tolerance there. And I'm just wondering, yeah. within all of that, um, you know, how does the Freemasonry movement and, or how are they seen to or how do they um, promote tolerance in terms of like building in inclusive and a sense of inclusivity and that kind of openness and that transparency? Because that's very oh, yeah. much how we operate uh, today as mm. organisations. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a prerequisite. I think it is um, a contradiction that, that Masonry uh, leaves, so to speak, on the edge between transparency and secrecy. Because are we, uh, are, are we prepared to accept that or not? Do we want to have organizations that are completely transparent or not? And the answer of Masonic organizations has been different. Some have published their rituals and said there's nothing secret in what we do. We, just, uh, we are secretive, but we are not in secret, um, secret society. Uh, we are society with secrets or these kinds of definitions that are kind of operating around that and are kind of describing Freemasonry as a, as a, a gentleman's club with, a, with a charitable agenda, so to speak. But that, that is one take of doing it. The other take is, as you say, in our times today of immediate uh, presence on social media and so on, everything has to be, you know, transparent and everybody wishes that it to be so. Yeah. Um, but I think that we, we need to, to think in, in the terms that people also long for zones that are liberated of transparency, that where you can, where you can meet face-to-face uh, in direct personal intercounters without it having to be transparent. I think that's also part of life. I mean, I'm quoting it a couple of, of occasions in my, in my book, uh, an Austrian uh, sociologist, Georg Simmel, who says that secrecy is one of the greatest accomplishments of humankind because it allows things to happen that otherwise not would happen and we have to live with a certain degree of tolerance towards uh, secrecy in societies. So you're, what you're arguing there is that we have to be a little bit more spacious in how we, you know, in terms of our comfort with ideas of secrecy yeah. in order for secrecy to flourish. Um, I'm just yeah. wondering, have you read um, many of the novels of Dan Brown? Yes, I have. And what do you think he's offered in terms of our understandings of uh, the Freemasonry movement? Because he has developed quite suspicious uh, conspiratorial narratives and done quite successfully with them. Absolutely. I think two two things uh, with uh, Dan Brown novels that I would like to highlight is that that on the one hand, uh, well, he he makes uh, a good story out of... um, these kinds of Masonic narratives that anyhow are around, like the symbols or this, the, the narrative frames of the rituals, and, and it links back to different uh, Renaissance or ancient traditions of wisdom and things like that. That is the one thing. The other thing is that he makes, um, he makes novels out of conspiracy narratives that already are around. So with, without the... For instance, in, in, in the one story I'm thinking about called The, the Lost Symbol, that is explicitly about Freemasonry, he, he makes a big deal of that. The, the entire plot of the story is built around the thing that if a Masonic ritual is revealed, then the reputation of the United States will you know, go up in the air. Nobody will uh, anymore trust the United States if they see some kind of Supreme Court judges engaged in, 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 in weird rituals that include uh, skulls and uh, swords and uh, blindfolded uh, candidates and so on. Uh, so he capitalizes on the idea that, that these rituals are so outrageous for, for the most of the people that if they are revealed, yes, then, then the image of, of the entire political community will, will uh, 
will be destroyed. And, and that, is, that is a conspiratorial reading that, that has been around in, in the press about Freemasonry since 300 years. Well, clearly he's so that, done. Clearly yeah. he's done nothing original, but he is a smart writer <laughs> in terms of how he's tapped into general collective unease yeah. and uncertainty exactly. and all that yeah. kind of paranoia. And we, yeah. we, you know, we all feel very powerless in life that we don't fully yeah. actually know what's really going. On.